Well, good morning. That was sad. Who didn't have their coffee this morning? Let's try that one more again. All right. Say good morning. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. Okay, we're awake. We're awake. Barely, but we're awake. Well, it's good to see you all this morning. And um, jokingly had a thought that uh, it was kind of funny. We started service and. Man, I was like, there's only like seven of us here, and then we turned around, and there's a boom, full church. So uh, we're glad to have you here. We're, uh, we're excited this morning. We're going to be jumping into a new series. Uh, I guess the last time I spoke to you, a couple weeks ago, we wrapped up our study in James. And so we decided uh, to open up a new series. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to First Thessalonians. And we're going to kind of go in here and... We're going to study just the opening of this, but before we do that, uh, we're going to put some context so you don't bring your pretext and make it a subtext. So we're going to talk about what the situation here at Thessalonians or Thessalonica was, um, but before we do that, let's read our text for this morning, and it's going to be verse 1 uh, through verse 10. And so... Uh, I'm reading from the ESV, but you read just whatever you need to read. But it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction Now you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you received the word in much affliction, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you would become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son, who has come from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, God, that you have given to us your scripture, God. That you would like to speak to us today is a marvel. God, we pray that we listen. We pray that we hear your word. God, we pray that you would just have your way this morning. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Let us find the things that you would have us to see. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So this morning we're going to cover three things in this brief ten verses in uh, Thessalonians. And we're going to cover the salvation, the sanctification, and the surrender of the people of Thessalonians. Um, so, before we get into that, I want to kind of take us back uh, to probably a study that we did 
uh, a little while ago, but I want to take us back to the book of Acts because I think it's important that we see what kind of situation that the, peace, the people of Thessalonica were dealing with. Because I think that a lot of times in our minds when we picture situations in the gospel, we like to have them in the rose-tinted glasses. Uh, we, we think, or at least I do, uh, they had the apostle Paul, so they probably didn't have problems. They probably didn't have anything going on, you know. They probably knew scripture better than we did, and they understood, and the context was different. But I want to take us back. So we're going to jump back to Acts 17. And I'm just going to read you a little bit about some of the people of Thessalonica. And in Acts 17, it says this. Now when they, talking about Paul and Silas, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. And he responded to them from the scriptures, explaining to them and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he said, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks, uh, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring him out of the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king whose name is Jesus. And the people in the city and the authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. We're going to jump now to verse 13. Paul moves on to Berea, but it says in verse 13, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So why do we read this? We read this because I want you all to see something, and that is that in the town of Thessalonica, not a small city, in the time that it was being received this letter, probably about 100,000 people living there, a seaport, a port of travel, a place of commerce. But it wasn't a city, a Christian city. And I want you all to see that they're not dealing with an easy situation. These are people who are angry about the gospel, who in a sense hate the gospel. They're not receptive. They're not people who like it. Now, why do I say that? Well, because when we go look into the Bible, we always look for your edification. What, what can we say about you, right? Many of you probably work or live in a place similar to this. Now, I'm not saying that you're having mobs raised up against you. Probably not. But you have people who are antagonistic against the gospel. You have people who don't want to believe the gospel and who at a point will even fight you about the gospel. So this is not a situation that we should be unaccustomed to. But I do want us to know that this is a situation we should understand. And because we're going to look here uh, as we go through and describe these people of Thessalonica, there's some things that I want us to see, but I want us to see them 
in their context. Meaning, I want you to realize these people were doing this in a time when they were hated for doing it. Okay? So, as we go through, we're going to start again with the salvation of the people. Because it's, it's paramount, right? It's paramount for us to begin. Uh, if you don't know, Christian life should begin at salvation. Uh, if you think Christian life begins somewhere else, uh, we can have a talk after service. I'd love to do that with you. Um, but we understand that the Christian life is one that begins with salvation. So we start here, and, they, and Paul opens his letter, and he begins to write to the people and talk with them. And these are people that he does love. Paul is writing out of love for these people, and he says that we, will make, that we give thanks to God for you constantly, mentioning you in our prayers. Now, I think this is just something for us, just as kind of a side note as we go through this text. Um, you should be praying for your fellow believer. And you should be giving thanks for them because we hold each other up. One of the things that, that I, I always have believed is that the local church has always been a family. And that we are always here for one another to, to help one another. And you, you might not like me, that's okay. But at the same time, I'm always here. And I'm always here to love on you and to say that I'm going to try to do the best I can for you. And we should be about that for everyone, right? We should have that relationship with all of our brothers and sisters. So as Paul goes through, he says, I just want you to know that we are always praying for you and we're always giving thanks for you. He says, we remember you before our God. <coughs> There's three things that he mentions specifically, and then you'll know these when I list these off. He lists three things. He lists faith, love, and hope. Now, you probably heard those in a different order, right? Um... I was cut my teeth on the, the King James, so it was uh, faith and charity and, and hope. And the greatest of these is what? Right. So you have heard these before. But I want you to not stop with just hearing the words, because we can always take it back to Corinthians 13, and we can dwell there if we want to. But I actually want you to realize what the qualifiers of those words are, because they're very important. When he says this, he says, we, we thank you for what your work in the faith because it's not just something to have faith they were having to work in it they were having to live it out we just finished James that says if you want to show me your faith show me your faith without your works I'll show you my faith by my works he says this is not just a matter of faith it's a matter of your works in faith it's not just a matter of love he says what it's a labor of love and finally, we'll finish up. He says, it's not just a, a fact that you have hope, but it's your steadfastness in your hope. You see, those things are great. Like, we could have stopped and Paul could have said, I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love. I've heard about your hope. And those are wonderful things. But the fact that he qualifies it gives us a, an encouragement. Because it means that faith's not always easy. Sometimes you have to work to have faith. Sometimes you have to work your, yourself into faith. We were having a conversation kind of last night, and to give you kind of an, uh, a personal uh, story of mine, when I went through and I was raised in a Christian church, I was raised to believe the Bible, and about 18 I started taking the spiritual journey. I said, you know, I just really don't know why I say this is correct if I don't know what else is out there. 
So I put myself through the ringer, right? I started uh, looking at uh, Buddhism and Jainism and Hinduism and just like, is there any truth here? What's true? What's not? There's got to be objective truth somewhere, so let me help find it. And I started going through these things, and uh, if you can picture someone like me trying to practice meditation and yoga, it was kind of an interesting sight, um, especially the tree pose. Just, it, was, it was hard. But I went through these things because I wanted to find the truth in something. And what I found is that to find my faith, I had to work through it. I had to work through my faith. I had to test my faith. I think that, that faith is one of those muscles that you have to exercise. And I tell the youth a lot of times, I said a lot of times when we exercise our faith, what we're doing is uh, if you see me out and about and I'm telling you, you know, let's say that, you know, um, David, I'll pick on David. Let's say David calls me up and he says, Brett, are you working out? I'm like, you don't even know, my man. I'm pumping the most amount of iron you've ever seen, right? <laughs> but, then, but then, you know, his dad is beside me. And he calls his dad, like, Brett's pumping iron. And his dad's like, yeah, he's lifting a five-pound weight over and over and over. I'm not really doing anything for myself. I'm doing all the motions, but I'm not exercising that muscle. You see, to exercise a muscle, you have to pull it tense. You have to pull it all the way through in a, in a motion. And faith is like that. Because a lot of times what we do when we exercise faith is we exercise faith in a way that we could probably accomplish ourselves. Right? So you say, well, you know, God, just get me through the day. That's faith. That's a real small amount of faith. Because <laughs> God can get you through the day, and you can probably make yourself get through the day. But when's the last time you prayed for something that you couldn't do? That's a work of faith. That's a faith that's coming out and saying, God, if you don't show up, this isn't happening. And I think that's what Paul has in mind. He says, I've seen your faith and I've seen how it works. Not only that, but I've seen your love. Now, I'm not married, okay? As you can see, you know, me. All of you who are married will tell me love takes work, right? Has anyone ever just been like, I've never worked a day in my life in marriage. It was just the easiest thing ever came to me, like a duck to water. Like, no, you're going to have problems. You're going to have ups and downs. And the way that love works, it doesn't mean you don't love that person. But it's hard work to go through that. It's hard to love yourself. Because we, we kind of struggle and we have this 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 problem, it's called sin, and, and we struggle through that, and we struggle to love each other, we struggle to love one another, we struggle to love ourselves. And so Paul says, it's not just about your love, or your object of your love, it's about the labor that you put into your love. How much do you work for it? How much do you push yourself into that love? How much do you give? It's not only that, but he says this. It's not only that, it's just the hope, but it's the steadfastness of your hope. This idea of being like set and like unmovable. So when I think about a steadfastness, 
I'm always taken back to a word, word picture uh, in the Greek language when it talks about being set and being steadfast. The idea that it brings to mind is one of a soldier. And, and Roman soldiers, and you've probably seen uh, either in movies or whatever else, uh, the big rectangular shields in the front, right? Um, the guys who were the, the spear bearers, and sometimes they were a little cut out and they'd hold those spears through. But what you probably didn't know, or what they don't depict in the movies, but if uh, Josephus writes about it in his histories, is that they would actually put about three inch spikes on their feet. So what they would do is they would walk up with their shield and they would plant themselves into the ground because their goal was to not move. They are the front line. They don't move. And when you picture that in, a, in an idea of hope, can we say that we are steadfast in our hope, that we are planted and rooted in all of our hope, that we will not be moved? Because that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, guys, you can be. Remember, this is not an easy situation, right? This is not like Thessalonica is kind of like heaven. Don't worry about it. You can do this. Mobs and riots are going on in the city about Jesus. And these people are saying, even despite that, despite mobs and riots, and despite all the things that's going on, you're set in your hope. So he continues on. And, and this he starts moving in to being chosen in Christ, and that's where we're going to be moving into the second point, which is they were the sanctification, mostly of Paul, right? Paul says as an example. Now, I am famous to say, um, Paul likes to say things like, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? As if it's something we should have done by like 1 o'clock. It's not. I'm not going to give you that to do, right? Because if you, if you do, I'll be more than proud of you. And I'll probably take notes because I haven't figured that out yet. But he does go through and he does say something similar. So we're going to figure out what he's trying to say. He continues in. He says that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important. Evangelism is wonderful, but only when God moves. So what I mean by that is there are some times that I have found in my life when I have evangelized and it was almost just robotic. I did it because it's what Christians do. And God convicted my heart and said, that's not, that's not the way we work. We're called to love people. And we're called to labor in that love for people. And so it's great, right? It's great to evangelize, but I want you to evangelize with a heart for people. And if you don't have that heart for people, start praying for that heart for people. Because God will give it to you. And Paul says, in all of this, we came to you because it wasn't just the word that came to you. right? We didn't just show up and say, you're a sinner. Stop sinning. We came to you and we showed up and we said, Christ is the way. And the Holy Spirit moved in you. You see, it's an act that takes place on both sides. God has to move, and you have to move. But I'm always famous to say again that 
are, their decision is not on you. Because I am, I am one of those people who, like, when I evangelize and they're just like, yeah, it's just not for me. I'm just like, mm, what could I have done different? It's possible God didn't move. And their decision is not on me. My obedience rests in the telling, not in the outcome. And so he says that when we came to you, we spoke with power that was rooted in the Holy Spirit, was full of conviction. But this is big, because if you're going to, if you're going to evangelize, the first part that Paul just said is good. The second part is necessary. He says this. He says, you know what kind of men that we prove to be among you, and I love this, for your sake. So this is what it is, right? If you are telling me that you're a Christian, or as we, uh, we said last night, it was harder to say, that you're an obedient follower of Jesus Christ, and your life doesn't match up, you're not going to be effective. And it's just, it's one of those things that if you have someone who has never coached football before and they are pulled in and put in the head coach of the national championship team they're just not respected because they haven't done it now am I telling you you have to be perfect no goodness no what I'm telling you is that our life should be characterized by some things because the funny thing is and again, I keep, keep talking about kind of the conversations we had last night, but the funny thing is that if you ask the world what a Christian looks like, they'll tell you. They'll start to help, they'll start like lining up. Like, he looks like this, he doesn't do this, he does this, he doesn't do that. You start asking us what a Christian looks like, we're like, well. <laughs> but they know. They know what we're supposed to look like. Now, are we always going to look perfect? No. And we should explain that to them. Guys, we're not perfect. We're just saved by Christ's grace and mercy. But they'll tell you what you need to look like, what your life should look like. They'll also tell you if you're wrong. Right? I'll stand before you as a pastor and say one of the biggest convictions in my life was one of my friends looking at me and saying, aren't you a pastor? Why'd you say that? And I was like, Phew. I was like, you are so right. <laughs> I was like, and I had to like repent to people right in front of me. Like, and my pride wanted to be like, huh, grace is a thing. Get off my back. But I knew the right thing, and they were correct. That's why I hate when people are like, oh, you're just judging me. Like, as your brother and sister, we should be accountable to one another for what our lives do look like. And that's. It's difficult to humble yourself to that point, but it's necessary. That's why what Paul said in the first part was really great, but this is necessary. If you're going to evangelize, you have to make sure that to the best of your ability, you're trying to match this book. You're trying to make yourself look like Christ. And as James says, we don't want to be the person that looks at him and then turns away and forgets what he saw, right? Thessalonians, we'll get to it eventually. I love the passage. It's one that I kind of quote to myself every day, but it says, uh, again, King James, those that compare themselves with themselves are not wise. 
So don't compare yourself to me, right? Because you'll look real good. <laughs> but compare yourself to Christ. And if you continuously to put him on the pedestal and to look at yourself and to look at him, that's when growth will happen. Now, you can imitate me as much as I imitate Christ. That's what Paul goes on to say here. We'll continue reading. He says, and you became imitators of us, but this is the point, and of the Lord. So it's not just me, right? I, I love the, the, the father and the son, and you can always see when the son is like trying to be like his dad. Or if, you, uh, if you've ever gone on a mission trip uh, with a youth group, you can usually find like there's some people who will just pick out people and they'll just do everything they did. Um, I was um, I was blessed to be in one of these situations where we were on a mission trip and we were trying to tear down a house and and I had um, they gave me a sledgehammer you know ooh. but uh, they gave me this huge hammer and I was like just trying to take out this wall and I looked over and there was just like this five year old with a little bitty hammer just hitting the wall and I was like no oh. like he must be like me you know and I was like I'm not worthy of that just stop. But you can see that. And as Christians, we should imitate the effective things in the lives of each other. Things that are good. I use some of you as an example of, of, of just how to wrap your mind around how to have things and deal with things. And, and I'm going to have to lean on some of you uh, for marriage advice because I, I haven't done it, right? Again, I told you, I can't give advice on something I haven't done, right? And I have to lean on people who've done that. Because you guys know, and you guys have seen, and you guys have been there. And it's, it's humbling, right? Because it's like, I'm, I grew up in like a, oh, I can figure it out type of deal. But I can't. And that's necessary. And so Paul says, you imitate us as we imitate the Lord. And I love this. You receive the word in much affliction. Now, this is a, a common theme throughout Paul's letters. Uh, in the book of Philippians, he would write to them and says, I want you to, to imitate Christ, but not only in the power of his resurrection, but the fellowship of his sufferings. And we like to think that, you know, Christ, we should receive better than what Christ received. You know, we should be treated better than Christ. But Christ would go on to say, if the world loves you, something's wrong. Because the world hated me. And if you look like me, it's going to hate you. But you're persecuted for my name's sake, you'll be blessed. And so he continues on that there is some affliction going on. Now, I... I I don't like the word sacrifice, and I think someone said it the other the other week in church when they said that um, you know sacrifice that we have is like minuscule, right? It's tiny, man. I really laid in a sacrifice today. I just took thirty minutes and just read the Bible. It was it was a sacrifice, and we think back and we're like. These people could lose their lives for mentioning the name Jesus. And that's a sacrifice. We don't sacrifice. Not in the way they do. 
and there's going to be some affliction that comes along with being a Christian. But it says that you took the, the affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, have you ever met someone who like kind of just faces hard things and does it with a smile and just confuses you? You're like, they're either psychotic or something going on, right? Like, I've seen that. I've seen, like, there's hard situations where I would just be, like, in tears and crying like a baby. But, like, they're just, like, smiling and, like, putting their arm around me and telling me it's okay. Because they have, like, this joy, this inner peace of the Holy Spirit that can't be moved. And it's rooted in Christ, not in themselves. And that's what he says we should take into ourselves is that, that joy of the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is lovely. It says, so that we do that not just for ourselves. We do that so that you will become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You don't just have joy because it's fun to have joy. You have joy because people see it. You know, go into your job, get chewed out by your boss, and come out smiling. People are going to notice something's up, right? Why are you smiling? They just chewed me out. Okay. But I'm still loved by the Lord. It's still a good day. And there are things that are going to happen in your life where it's going to be hard to smile. And it's going to be hard to have joy. But when you do, he says, as the people in Thessalonica did, you're an example. You're an example that is lifted up to all the believers. You're lifted up to me, right? You're lifted up to me to say, you know, I can say, I saw them go through a hardship and I saw that their joy never left them. And you're lifted up as a, an example and they were lifted up in all of their providence. It'd be like someone's, someone spoke out in Raleigh and the entire North Carolina heard about it. Because everyone knew what was going on. Now, as we continue going on, we're going to see their surrender. So, it says that in verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith, and God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. That's huge. <clears throat> I'd love that, right? I pray for the day when I go up to someone, I'm just like, um, hey, uh, I just want to invite you to church. And they're like, oh, okay, where? And I'm like, oh, glory to God, Christian fellowship. And like, yeah, I've had three people invite me to that church already this week. I'm like, wow, <laughs> right? I want people to hear about our faith in such a way that, you know, I'm still going to say something, but I wouldn't need to. And that's the type of reaction that, that the church has been yearning for. You see, when you stand up, when you're different, when you find these things, and when you find joy and peace, and you labor in love, and you work in your faith, and you have this steadfastness of hope, people talk about it. Because it's not normal. And Christianity was never meant to be normal. Faith in Christ was never meant to be just 
normal. It is literally a salvation of a person taken from a supernatural realm that rooted themselves in hell, tied down by all sorts of gross filthiness, and transported to a place of eternal peace, hope, and a lifetime and a mortal reign of splendor. How does that make sense? How is that normal? Like one of the reasons we celebrate conversion is because it's a miraculous occurrence. It is a miracle for a person to be pulled from the gates of hell and placed and rooted in heaven. And we should want to see more miracles. We should desire to see more people brought from that place. And that's done because we just we need to share our faith. And we need to have people talking about it, right? Never has it been that we can now have missions here. In all of human history, if I tell you you're going to be a missionary, it meant you pick up your life, you take it somewhere, you plant it. I can now tell you we are going on a mission to China and we will drive to NC State. Because it's called reverse missions. The world is coming to us. And if you want a real, like, almost damning fact on America and on the church in America, and I've never forgotten this, but in my evangelism class in college, they said this. They said, you know that countries that America were sending missionaries out to are now turning around and sending missionaries back to America because we need it. Because we're failing. Because we need to show people something that's different. If we look just like they look, if we do the same things they do, if we just get along, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Does it mean you can't have friends? No, I'm saying you need lost friends because they need you. But Paul says it's more than that. I wish that we could get to a place just as... Thessalonica got to where he says we don't need to say anything. People are already talking. People see it. They see it demonstrated in your life. They see how you love on them when they feel unlovable. They see how you react when uh, you are hurt by someone. They see these things and they're like, I don't need anything else. I I see it. The common, the common thing is there's something different in you. Yeah, there is. And we're called to be different. He continues on, he says this, in verse 9. For they, talking about the other people, not the church, right? For they, the, the, the Greeks, those people, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is what we call a testimony. Right? We rag on you. Please get in your testimonies. Get in your testimonies. Get in your testimonies. This is why. It's important for people to see where you used to be and where you're going. It's important for people. They want to see that. Like no one wants to hear my story. I do. I want to hear your story. 
because it's another miraculous occurrence of you being somewhere and going somewhere different. And you might say to me, well, Brett, you don't understand. Like, I grew up in the church. I was raised in the church. So it's not really like a miracle that I came to know Jesus. No, that's, to me, that's the biggest miracle. And I've said this before. Because you know how to do church really well. I grew up in the church. I can do church without, like, trying to do church. I can come in here and fake it. I really can. And my prayer to God is every day that I never do it. Because our goal is not to be fake and plastic, fantastic Christians. It's to be real people who struggle, who hurt. But when we succeed, everyone else knows. And it says this, it goes continuing as he talks and he's going through. It says that even they're talking about the reception that you gave us, how welcoming you were. When people walk through the door that like aren't a part of GGCF, and you know it, right? I, I guarantee the first day I stepped foot in here, everyone knew that like I wasn't a part of the church, right? I was one of like three white people in the church at the time. And one was in the band and one was running sound. So I was like, I didn't know anything, right? It was like, I was different. And, and people took time to say, you know, hey, welcome. And we should always do that. In fact, as a Christian, I would charge you to say you're required to do that. You're required to be welcome, to be loving. Those are things that characterize a Christian life. Wrapping up here, he says, we see the reception that we got for you, but it says you turn from idols, you turn to the living true God, and you wait for a son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The last thing we're going to speak on today is um, just a small amount of what he says here about turning from idols. Um, in, a, in a world that we live, um, we don't necessarily think about this much anymore. If In my mind, when I think of of idols, I like to think of like third world countries, um, countries um, like uh, Hindu Hinduist countries and temples and and all of these other things. Um, the only thing is that that thought is incorrect. An idol is just anything that you put in front of God. An idol can be a relationship. An idol can be a a love for your spouse. That's hard, right? But God required that. Love me before anybody else. The biggest idol we got, of course, resides in all of our pockets. But it's true. I would say, um, and I'm, I'm going to admit this too, that if, if I were to to study scripture as much as I'm on this phone, I'd probably just be like C.S. Lewis level by now. Um, but we do. We spend too much time with our faces stuck in screens. And it's an amazing fact that I read in, um, in a study of teens. Um, but teens are actually failing to have the ability to communicate with a person face-to-face. -face. They are incapable of it. That's not a knock. Well, it is. 
but it's not just teens. It's everyone. How many times have you ever called someone and they text you back? It's like, if I wanted to text, I would have texted you. I just want to talk. I can't even talk on the phone. And we have so many things that control our lives. And so many idols in our lives. Right? And I'm not just saying you all have all these idols, right? I have them too. And we have to turn from those. We have to learn to unplug. Say, well, I have to plug in for my work. Well, that's all you need to plug in. <laughs> because it's, it's actually ruining our minds and our hearts for people. Can you do evangelism through the internet? Yes, it's a great tool, but leave it at that. It's a tool. You know, I don't worship a hammer. I certainly don't worship what the hammer can create. I use it for a tool. And I think that's one of the things that Paul would say if he's here, he's saying, you know, I, I watched the Thessalonians turn from their idols. We have the same idols. They're just, they're just called different. And what we do with them, the way we play with them, is dangerous. Because any idol is dangerous. Anything you put before God is not good. Your time, it could probably be used more wisely. I am the worst procrastinator you've ever met. I procrastinated so bad one time I had five, ten page papers due in a week. Why? Because I'm bad at time management. Because I was out playing frisbee when I should have been writing papers. And someone came up to me and they're like, oh, you coming to church tonight? I was like, I got all these papers. And they're like, ah, oh, I see, idolatry at work. And I was like, ooh. All right, Jesus. You didn't have to step on my toes. You know? And then I was like, no, I kind of blew that one off. And my friend came to me. And uh, it was right before the church was about to start. And he just said something. I don't even know if he knew what he said. But he was said it in a joking manner. But it was super serious. He said, you know, so it's just a shame that you have the entire week and you can't give God a few hours. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm going to punt you in the face. That's what I'm going to do for you. Um, but I got up and I was like, well, I'll just take a lower grade on this paper because it was my fault anyway. And somehow God used the time that I had to finish that paper. And I'm certain I didn't get as great as I could have. But I learned something that, that if I prioritize God, he can make everything else work better. And I think that's, out, that's in our lives. Don't prioritize the phone. Don't prioritize whatever you think is the most important. Because as we go through, I want you guys to have salvation. I want you to, guys to be experiencing sanctification. But more importantly, we have to surrender. We have to surrender to his authority. So if you'll bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are...